Bible study, so we're Psalm 135. We'll start with our summary statement. Um, Psalm 135 praises Yahweh for electing Israel to be his special people and appointing Israel the everlasting inheritance of the land promised to Abraham. So I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 135 praises Yahweh for electing Israel to be his special people and appointing Israel the everlasting inheritance of the land promised to Abraham. Simple outline for the psalm will be in three parts. Verses 1 to 3, call to praise. Verses 4, through 18, reasons to praise. Verses 19 to 21, concluding call to praise. So I'll go over that just one more time. Verses 1 to 3, call to praise. Verses 4 to 18, reasons to praise. Verses 19 to 21, concluding call to praise. All right, so we'll move to our observations. Psalm 135 is an anonymous psalm. You can see that it has no superscription, so there's no um, authorship that is ascribed in the text of the psalm, uh, no um, significant um, traditional view as pertaining to possible authorship. Um, the psalm doesn't have specific musical direction, uh, although being a praise psalm, uh, it is a call to sing to the Lord, and I think we get um, maybe that mentioned in, in one place. Um, there's no occasion that is given for the psalm. Um, different scholars have suggested that there's an Aramaic influence on the underlying Hebrew of the psalm, making it uh, more recent um, in in style of the of the psalm as I mean in the Hebrew as opposed to some of the older ones. So the the Aramaic influence um, then would be a clue that this was composed sometime after the exile and maybe even possibly after the partial return from Babylon. Um, but sometime uh, obviously in that latter time frame that this psalm was written. Now having said that. Again, we're seeing an example of a psalm that's envisioning a future scene. So the occasion of the psalm, so to speak, is not something that's happened yet. Um, it's something that's going to happen. Um, so there's a future scene envisioned here, calling Israel to praise the Lord 
who has glorified his name and dwells in Zion or Jerusalem, which both are mentioned um, in this psalm. So to categorize this psalm, Psalm 135 is a praise psalm. And in fact, that was the um, outline that I um, indicated for um, the praise psalm, the call to praise, reasons to praise, and then a concluding call to praise, very typical um, of praise psalms. Um, Now, particularly, this psalm is a hallel psalm. So we have the, you can see the praise ye the Lord, hallelujah, that begins this psalm, and you'll notice that it ends this psalm, and actually it occurs one more time in verse number three. So three times hallelujah occurs in this psalm. Now, this psalm does stand alone as a hallel psalm, and it's, it's um, after there was a group of hallel psalms in uh, Psalm 111 to Psalm 117 that we looked at earlier here in book five of the Psalms. So this Psalm stands alone as a Hallel Psalm. It's not surrounded or joined to any, any others um, in, in succession. Um, and sometimes this Psalm was referred to as the great Hallel Psalm um, within Judaism. Um, but again, we see that Hallelujah occurs three times at the beginning, at the end, and in the body of the Psalm. And of course, it does satisfy the, the conventions of a, of a praise Psalm that we talked about with the outline, the call to praise, the reasons to praise, um, and the um, concluding call to praise. This psalm also has a number of minor elements to it. So there, there are some creation elements um, to the psalm, ref- referencing um, creation uh, psalms or, or elements in a psalm typically are references that could be to the actual act of creation, but doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, can also be sort of a reference to the creation in terms of natural references, the seas and the skies and, the, and, and that's, that sort of thing. And so we do get some of that. We also get historical, um, as we get a history of Israel, some history of Israel in this psalm. So we do have the minor elements of a historical psalm. It's also a Zion psalm. As we get the mention of Zion and, and Jerusalem there at the end of the psalm, again, the center of praise, just like we saw um, there as we got to the particularly the end of the psalms of, of ascent. Um, beyond that, we would also say that it is um, prophetic predictive, as again, it is envisioning a future scene that hasn't yet come to pass, but will come to pass um, at a future time. Now, the connections that this psalm has, um, it it does have some connections with the preceding psalms. So Psalm 133 and Psalm 134, um, we see references like standing in the house of the Lord that echoes from Psalm 134. Um, We we have the use of the terms good and pleasant. Uh, In Psalm 133, you remember they described um, brethren or kindred dwelling in unitedness that was good and pleasant and here in this psalm um, it is the lord and his name that are good and pleasant now um, aside from that though psalm 135 is very strongly connected to the hallel psalms that we saw earlier psalm 111 to psalm 117 particularly psalm 113 and psalm 115 So when you look at the opening and the closing here of Psalm 135, uh, very similar to Psalm 113, 
And the, strong, the, the most um, strong connections are actually with Psalm 115. So we get references to God being in the heavens and doing what pleases him, uh, the deliverance of Israel through um, God who is greater than the idols um, of the nations and, and such. So there's a number of, of um, very, very close connections between this psalm and Psalm 115. Now, if you remember the flow of the psalms as, as, we've, as we came into book 5, Psalm 110 is that great messianic psalm about David's Lord and David's son. It's a psalm that, that foretells that the Messiah would sit at the right hand of the Father until such time as the nations were subdued under him and he would um, come to Zion and reign in the midst of the nations. And that's Psalm 110. And then, then we have the Hallel Psalms, these Hallelujah Psalms, these praise Psalms. And they function in a way right after that psalm as, as just a, a, a great gallery of, of praise to the Lord for all of this coming about. So we've also just finished another group of psalms, the Psalms of Ascent. Now the Psalms of Ascent um, were all about um, the exile and the ending of the exile when, when Israel will be gathered and and will be restored and and the tribes will dwell unitedly um, in the land that's been been promised to them Jerusalem and Zion will be restored the house of David will be restored the throne of David will be restored and will be occupied um, by the the anointed um, son king all of those things in in those psalms of ascent that that ultimately culminate in that uh, future gathering to Jerusalem, where all all are going up to Jerusalem to um, worship the Lord because the King is there um, in Zion. And so, following that, now we get another Hallel Psalm, and and there's obviously a number of connections here. Um, and and the, the Psalms of Ascent celebrated that future gathering and restoration of Israel to the Promised Land. And so, this this praise Psalm, this Hallel Psalm follows that connection as if to say, praise the Lord for all of, all of this. And so it, it capitalizes on that, um, on that theme coming out of the Psalms of Ascent. Now, it does have some outside connections um, beyond the Psalms, and particularly uh, we get references to the history of Israel, and so there's uh, various places in the, in the Pentateuch and even uh, the book of Joshua and and such that some of these histories are, are found in. But, but there are many um, connections with Deuteronomy, references to um, statements and things in Deuteronomy, as well as verse 14 here actually quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse number 36. And we'll look at that a little bit when we get there. Now the poetic features of this psalm, one would obviously be the use of repetition, uh, repetition of praise, repetition of the name of the Lord, repetition of hallelujah, uh, praise ye the Lord. Um, so there, there, is, there is a bit of repetition that goes throughout. There's a little bit of imagery. It's, it's not a lot of imagery or um, highly, you know, like symbolic type of expression. Um, a little bit of imagery in the psalm, particularly when the denunciation of the idols, um, God is as as commanding nature, as it were, the creation. Some, some of those things gives us a little bit of imagery. Uh, this psalm also features that um, poetic uh, effect uh, referred to as an apostrophe, where um, 
a, a person or an object or, or something is addressed directly, but they're not present. So it's not really like the psalm is written to or, or is addressing them. In this case, um, you can see a, a, a direct address to ancient Egypt in verse number 9, which obviously um, ancient Egypt didn't exist at the time of, of the writing of the psalm, much less today. Um, other than that, I would say that the psalm uses a centering effect. So um, it opens and closes very similarly. When you look at the beginning of it, you look at the, the ending of it, there's a lot of similarity between that, and um, some, uh, some would refer to that sort of as an as a enveloping structure. Um, what, what it tends to do is it, it, it circles or um, it, it sort of brings emphasis to the center. So, so you can think of the, of the, of the psalm like a, <clears throat> maybe like a wheel that has a, has a hub in the, in, in the center and, and you know, goes, radiates out from there. Uh, that may be helpful or not. Um, so we get that opening and closing and similarity. And so w- what do we see in the center? Like w- what is it that is, is getting the emphasis in the psalm? And it's, it's Yahweh's great, greatness and his faithfulness. These are the things that are emphasized here in the center. Now, specifically, these are emphasized in regard to his promises and his conduct toward Israel, beginning with their election and ending with their redemption. Uh, And so that is how that is brought out. All right, so we'll work our way through here. 21 verses, longer than most of the Psalms we've been looking at lately, but I'll go ahead and read this. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for he is pleasant. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel for his peculiar treasure. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven, and in earth, in the seas, and all deep places." He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasuries. Who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. Who sent tokens and wonders into the midst of thee, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and upon all his servants. Who smote great nations and slew mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And gave their land for an heritage, an heritage unto the Israel, his people. Thy name, O Lord, endureth forever, and thy memorial, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people, and he will repent himself concerning his servants. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. They that make them are like unto them, so is every one that trusteth in them. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. Ye that fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion, which dwelleth at Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. So verses 1 to 4 give us this opening call to praise and, and get us started in this psalm. So there's a, a call to praise the Lord and a call to praise 
his name. Now, we've noticed a number of times as we've been going through the Psalms in particular, and, and you've had these references outside of the Psalms as well, but as we've been going through the Psalms, we've noticed that these references to the name of the Lord, well, these, when we see that reference to the name of the Lord, well, the name obviously um, stands for the person, stands for the character, stands for the reputation. So that's, that's bringing us to where we see that the name of the Lord is specifically a covenant reference. His name is what he gave as security of his promises. This is why he said that he, for the sake of his own name, he will keep his promises to Israel. So praising the Lord and praising his name. So this fixes the praise on the Lord or the praise of the Lord for glorifying his name through covenant faithfulness or fulfilling his promises that he has sworn by his name. Now, the reference to standing in the house of the Lord um, echoes from the previous um, psalms and points to that continuity of of worship that we saw there. Uh, We see the good and pleasant here that is ascribed to God and to his name, um, essentially referring to the beauty of goodness that's seen in his redemptive works and his faithfulness. Now, when we think about this, this opening call to praise and how that it has singled out the Lord Uh, and the Lord's name, and the Lord is good, and his name is pleasant or or beautiful. And so we have these heavy um, covenantal references um, that that essentially God has has put his own name at stake for his actions. So it might lead us to ask a question, well, what is the stage where his praiseworthy attributes are seen? And it's like verse 4 is the answer to that question. That it sets us up for this is the stage for God making known his praiseworthy attributes and acts. What is that stage? What is the fact that he elected Israel, the descendant nation from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he has elected them for this purpose. He made them, as it says, his peculiar treasure. Now that term is only found eight times in all of the Old Testament. And in six of those times, they are specific references to Israel as God's unique possession. The only other two times that it is used is in, is in reference to actual treasure, silver and gold, that was owned in one case by David that he gave um, to, for the building of the temple and um, by kings when it referred to as Solomon that that he essentially got to himself the special treasures of of these kings of these nations so here's the six references Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5 Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 chapter 14 and verse 2 chapter 26 and verse 18 here in Psalm 135 and verse 4 and in Malachi chapter 3 verse number 17 so All of the uses of this term imply that there is special and particular ownership. And that is what is said of Israel as a nation. Verses 5 to 7 then gives us this um, entry into the praiseworthy attributes and acts of God. So he is a God above or over all gods. Now, this is a reference to the sovereign supremacy of God. There's none greater. There's none higher. There's none mightier in power. There's none greater in authority and, and, and on and on that, that we could go. 
Now, here's where we get some of these creation references. So we get reference to the heavens, and that is the um, Hashemayim there, that it, it is plural. Um, it is heavens, um, earth, seas, all deeps. In other words, these are, these are particular realms of creation. And in these realms of creation, there have been thought to be various powers that hold sway in those realms. Some might be referred to as gods, gods of the sea and gods of the sky and gods of, of, of the deep places um, of the earth. They also um, might be referred to as, as spirit beings, um, dark, demonic forces that seem to have sway. Well, the point of this reference here is that God created all of these realms. And the implication is because he created all these realms, they're his, they belong to him, and he commands. He holds sway. He is above all in all of these realms, throughout all the realms of his creation that he has made. So he rules over the false gods and all any that, that are thought to rule in these realms. And then we get a reference to his governance of the creation. Notice those verbs there, how that God causes and he makes and he brings. And this is referring to, um, we might refer to it as the natural cycle of of the earth, including the weather and the seasons and all all those sort of things. But this psalm, which is much in the vein of of other psalms and other places in the Bible that, that speak of this, that God is active. It's not that it's, the Bible doesn't, tell us that God created the heavens and the earth and, and simply set them in motion and they're just doing what they do. The Bible tells us that God is active in governing over the creation. He both um, causes, he allows, he permits. Essentially, there's nothing that takes place in this creation that God does not permit that God does not will to be in some way or another. Now, that's getting a little bit beyond the scope of this psalm, um, but nevertheless, that is what the, what the allusion is for. And then we get to verses 8 to 12. Now, in verses 8 to 12 is where we have particular historical reference, and we get sort of a recounting of the history of Israel and, and in two um, main emphasis. So the, the first is pertaining to the Exodus. So Israel and Egypt and the Exodus, God bringing Israel out of Egypt. There's reference here to the Passover, the death of the firstborn of of Egypt, to the plagues that came on Egypt, as well as the miracles of deliverance like the crossing of the Red Sea and such. So all of these things are referred to as God's God's mighty acts that he performed um, in bringing Israel out of Egypt. And so in one way you can think about it also as, as God triumphing. As, as God triumphing over Egypt and, and over their gods and over um, their powers that would um, seek to prevent um, him from delivering Israel from Egypt. And then the second emphasis is the conquest, the conquest of the nations of Canaan. And so we get some specific reference there as, as God came out and, and, and brought Israel out and defeated these various kings. And when you read through those histories, you know there are times that that um, Israel prevailed, and they prevailed because God gave them the battle. There were times when, due to sinfulness, unfaithfulness, and unbelief, and other things, that, that they were defeated. And they were defeated because God wasn't on their side, um, because of their unbelief and, and such things as that. 
So this conquest is mentioned. But all of that leads up to, in this passage, the ownership of the earth. He gave the land of Canaan. And you notice that in verse 12, it says he gave their land. And he's taught, and the referent there is the nations, the nations of Canaan in particular. He gave their land to his special people, Israel, for an inheritance. So he gave the land of Canaan that he promised to Abraham to Israel as he promised to do and as he will yet do. Um, here we see also um, this reference to Israel, his people. And we've talked about this a number of times as we've encountered it in the Psalms, um, but it, it holds true throughout the Old Testament. We've even seen New Testament equivalency to the same. This term for people is singular. It is singular for nation, alm, uh, uh, a, a nation, um, a particular group. And it is used with the possessive, his. And every single time it refers to Israel those descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here again, we see that coming up. Then we get to verses 13 and 14, and this is where there's sort of this praise of the Lord that's unleashed after this rehearsal of his past acts. So the Lord is essentially praised for his past acts, and his past acts of deliverance for Israel foreshadow his future acts. They show us um, God has done and so God will do, because God has promised to do more than what he has done to this point. And so he will act, and he will deliver. So the, the point that we see again, we see this repetition of the Lord's name, and, and we get the idea here of enduring, and enduring through all generations. Well, God's name doesn't cease to be. God's name doesn't fade or decline And so God's promises don't cease to be, nor do God's promises fade or decline or get replaced by something else. Now, the word for memorial means a memory or or a remembrance, and it says that it's kept through the generations. In other words, it's unaffected by time. And in a sense, we can think about the, the generations of the long exile um, that, that, are, that are still um, under this particular judgment, but yet God still remembers. And he will yet end that exile and gather them to that land that he has promised. And the passage of time doesn't affect that. It doesn't, it doesn't change it. You, you know how uh, as, as human beings we're very limited, our lifespans are very short, um, and, and we think of long time that really isn't that long at all, but the passage of time, our, our memories tend to deteriorate. Um, we forget about things. Uh, maybe, maybe things were promised at, at a time, and, and over time they sort, of, they sort of just get shoved out by other th- things, and we just forget about it. But the point is, is that's not, not the way it is with God. Generation after generation after generation, God remembers. He will not forget his promises. And then verse 14 is where we get this quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse number 36. And of course, when you study um, Deuteronomy as, as the end of the, of the Pentateuch especially and the end of, of the book of Deuteronomy, we know that, that Moses gives all these prophecies about how they're going to go into the land 
and they're not going to keep the covenant, and they're going to be dispersed from off this land. They're, they're going to be, you know, for, they're going to endure this judgment for a long, long time. But in the last days, God is going to remember, and he's going to turn, and he's going to be gracious, and his people are, are going to repent, and they're going to believe, and they're going to be gathered and restored to this land that is promised. And what we find out as um, the Old Testament unfolds is that it's through his new covenant that all these promises to Abraham and then the later promises to David are going to be fulfilled. So his people Israel will be vindicated, essentially. They'll be judged. They'll, they'll be vindicated is, is the idea there. And they'll be vindicated for their trust in him. And it, that means that on the one hand, they're going to gain victory over their enemies. So they're, they're enemies that have for so long afflicted and oppressed and persecuted and pursued. They're going, to be, they're going to gain victory over their enemies. And also they're going to gain fulfillment of all the promises. They're also going to receive all the blessings that have been promised. They will not be forgotten. And in verses 15 to 18 now, gives us this section that is a denunciation of idols. And it is nearly identical to Psalm 115 verses 4 to 8. Um, the idols here, they're described with various images. Um, they, they, uh, they're silver and gold. They have mouths and eyes and ears and things. Um, but, they, but they don't do actions. They don't see. They don't hear. They don't deliver. Idols are things that have been shaped by men's hands. Men have made them. And and they are shaped into some form, but in reality, they're just dead chunks of metal or wood or stone that some workman has crafted. And they're made by men, and they're just as powerful, they're every bit as powerful as men can make them to be, which means they're powerless. They have no power, they have no life, they're dead. And those that put their trust in them will be like them. In other words, they will be dead. They will die. They will be destroyed. Obviously, this passage echoes from uh, other places in the Psalms. Psalm 44, verse 9 to 20. Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8, obviously. But also the prophetic places like Isaiah chapter 40, verses 19 to 31. And Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. And then we come to verses 19 to 21, which give us the concluding call to praise in this psalm. And we, you notice that Israel here is called, and is called by houses. And the calling of Israel by houses indicates the restoration and the unitedness that has been alluded to previously, particularly in the psalms of, of ascent. They are, they're, they're called by houses and by families and by, by tribes, ultimately. And you notice that God is to be worshipped in Zion. Blessed be the Lord. And again, it's that term that comes from a root that means to kneel or to bow before. It's, it's, it's indicating worship. God is, he will be praised in Zion where he dwells at Jerusalem. And that's what the language here indicates. And the word for dwelling, um, it, it has the idea of abiding, of remaining, um, not, you know, not just any sort of a, of a temporary stop, but, but being in a place and a, making an abode there. And then we get to concluding, hallelujah, praise ye the Lord.
All right. Interpretation. Psalm 135 teaches God's sovereign supremacy over Israel, over nations, over gods, and over idols. And again, this psalm has, has this centering effect. It centers on God's faithful acts toward Israel, the nation he chose for his own. And so the, the point, as you, as you read through this psalm and you, you see God's great power over, over all these entities, the point is that the nations, the gods, and the idols cannot thwart or prevent him from fulfilling his promises to Israel. And the historic references that we get serve to reinforce this point. You've got the exodus from Egypt. Well, Egypt didn't, didn't want to go along. If you remember when Moses spoke to Pharaoh in Egypt back in the, in the book of Exodus, one, one of the responses that, that Pharaoh gave was, who's God that I should listen to him? In other words, who's your God that I should listen to him above our gods? Why should I, why should I obey his voice? That's one of the ways that Pharaoh responded. So in other words, they had no desire in Egypt to fulfill the will of Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. But yet, despite all of that, and despite all of their efforts to prevent it, they could not. God brought them out, and God brought them out in such a way that, 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 that the knowledge of it was known among the nations. And you get just such a, such a beautiful picture when you get to um, the book of Joshua. And you think about this prostitute woman, Rahab, dwelling on the walls. She's, she's not someone that was seen as important in society. You know, oh, we better go tell Rahab about what's going on down there in Egypt. But yet, what did she tell those spies of Israel? She said, we have heard. We have heard what the Lord did in Egypt. And our hearts melted within us for fear because of it. So here is this sort of lowest common denominator of society that knew all about what God did in Egypt. So Egypt... which was the strongest nation on the earth at the time, sought with all of their power and all of their gods to be able to prevent God from taking Israel out of that land. But they couldn't stop him. And then you get reference to the conquest of Canaan. And those nations tried by trickery, by deceit, by brute force, by alliances, by um, bribing prophets. They tried every possible scheme to prevent Israel from coming in, defeating them, and taking the land, and they did not succeed. It was actually Israel's failure that caused the problem. It was their unbelief and their failure to obey God that caused the problem that they ended up being dispersed. They didn't take full possession. They ended up being dispersed. Well, when we look at this psalm and we see God's sovereignty and his providential control of history and his redemption and and all of these things, realize that these these are not just given to us in general. These are given to us in specifics. This, this is how God chose this nation. 
God claimed this nation as his own special treasure above all nations of the earth. And he made certain promises to them. And because of that, he acted in these mighty acts that all the powers um, in heaven, in, in earth, and under the earth could not stop him from doing. So God chose that nation that he made from Abraham as his own special treasure. And through them, he brings blessings to all the nations of the earth when he ultimately remains in Zion, reigning there from Jerusalem. So the messianic hope is seen through the fulfillment of this prophetic vision by the Lord dwelling in Jerusalem. How is the Lord going to dwell in Jerusalem? Well, we're told in places like Psalm 2. We're told in places like Psalm 110 and a lot of other places beside. He's going to dwell in Zion when his anointed son king, who is David's son and David's Lord, is going to sit literally, physically, visibly, tangibly in Jerusalem and reign over Israel and over all the nations of the earth. So all creation, all nations, all forces, Yahweh sets his anointed son king in Zion to rule forever, just as we've seen in many of the Zion Psalms as well as other Messianic Psalms. All right, let's go to application. I have two of these. Understanding Psalm 135 helps us understand how to seek first his kingdom. You know, you get that great passage there in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So we look at a psalm like this and we realize we're not, we're not driven to despair by enemies that threaten and oppose. And we're also not driven to hope in idols and false gods by whatever things are, are going on in the world today. We are to fear and to trust in God who will keep his promises to Israel and therefore everyone who believes in him has hope of eternal life in his kingdom. And no matter what forces that we see at work in the world, no matter how dark and how demonic that, that they are, well, we know that Jesus is the stronger man. He will bind those forces. He rules over all. Number two, understanding Psalm 135 also helps us understand the appropriate response to God's sovereignty and his election, his choice in redemption. That response is to praise him. That's the proper response. Not to question him, not to object to him, but to praise him. This is his power that rules over all. And as the psalm says, he's in the heavens and he does everything that pleases him. Everything that he does, it pleases him. And what is the response? Again, a psalm like this, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, bless the Lord, over and over and over again in this psalm.